Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 11, verses 14 to 28, if you want to turn with me. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, but if I, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, honey. I've never said that ever. I don't know why. I don't know why I chose that as the first. There you go. You guys are getting a lot of McConaughey's on stage this morning. Lucky you. What do you need? Bible reading? Bit of BVs? Sermon? A Stevie Wonder cover song? <laughs> is, um, oh my gosh, I'm off script and I'm live on page one. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, it's, uh, it's uh, a privilege that I get the opportunity to open the word with us this morning. I do feel like a sub-teacher. Uh, John and Alan are on their much-deserved holidays, and they have left me with an easy one. <laughs> Beelzebul. Cool. Thanks, guys. Really cool. Um, no, it's, it's actually okay. I think um, the, the stuff about Beelzebul um, is serious and requires a bit of unpacking, but I think we'll find that it's, it's, it's not the focus. Um, the focus is Jesus. <laughs> the focus is Jesus' authority over all things, um, and there's some interesting stuff about our response to that. Um, so uh, let's, let's get going. Um, I, I love how this passage starts. It, it's straight in. It's no hanging about. There's no pretext. Uh, nothing. It's Tom Cruise hanging off a building. It's James Bond chasing down a bad guy. It's uh, Walter White in his RV in the desert wearing nothing but his pants and a gas mask. Um, that's the drama that we're dropped into this morning. We're straight in there. Now, as Jesus, as he was casting out a demon, um, the curtain lifts, and Jesus is in the middle of something pretty considerable. 
Um, but as often the case, to truly understand the significance of this moment, we need to take a step back uh, and consider the historical context, the cultural context. So uh, up until this point, Jesus and his disciples aren't just telling tales of God's kingdom, they're acting it out. And these events that we've been looking at for the last number of weeks and months have been provoking reactions from wonder to skepticism. In a society where spiritual and physical realities are deeply interwoven, Jesus' exorcism carries immense significance. It's a tangible proof of spiritual authority. It's a clear declaration of his divine mission. And here we encounter the Beelzebub controversy. And this, this story underscores not just the sheer power of God, but also the stark reality of spiritual warfare and the crucial role of obedience to God's words. It calls us to reflect on these themes, asking us not to be spectators, but active participants in the kingdom of God. So um, the, where we're going, we're, look, have a look at um, this story of Jesus's miraculous healing. We'll look at the confrontation with the mute demon. We'll look at um, the authority of Jesus. And then we'll, we're gonna look a bit at some of the the, the stormy waters of skepticism, having a look at what it means to doubt. Um, we'll, we'll look at some of the parables that come up afterwards, and we'll think about spiritual warfare, and finally, we'll get to this point about true blessedness, where we learn that Jesus' redirection of attention from physical connections to the rewards of hearing and obeying God's word. Sound good? Good, all right. Uh, let's pray. I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit for some help here. Um, Father, we thank you so much for your words. Thank you so much for your church, for these opportunities to spend time reading and studying your word, hearing it um, proclaimed and declared. Uh, Father, this is uh, your word, and um, Lord, we're just so grateful for it. We ask, Lord, that it would, um, it would be a light unto our feet. Um, Holy Spirit, we believe it, that you're real, that you're active, that you're working in us and, and shaping us into the likeness of your Son. So be with us as we continue on from here. Amen. Okay, so let's uh, picture the scene. A man previously mute is now speaking. His voice is echoing across the crowd. Jesus has just cast out a demon that held this man captive. It's a staggering display of divine power, and not just because it's a miracle, but because it's an affirmation of Jesus' authority over the forces of evil. And there's some time here given to the reactions. Among the, uh, the amazed faces in the crowds, some couldn't quite believe what they were seeing, and they start mumbling. They start accusing Jesus of using the power of another to cast out this demon. This other Beelzebub, also sometimes spelt Beelzebub, is, often, is a term often associated with Satan or the devil in the Christian tradition. It originates um, from a word that I learned this week, means Lord of the Flies. So there you go. There's a little tidbit for you. Nothing to do with the book. Um, as we've gone through this series, I don't know about you, I've been learning to have grace for those who respond to Jesus in the ways that might make you want to facepalm, um, because I think more often than not, we are probably that person that is, should be, you know, have that reaction towards us, and uh, that's the story here as well. Um, those accusing Jesus are just trying to comprehend something it's so extraordinary that it, it's just so, it's so beyond their limits of understanding. Um, so we need to afford grace and, 
because that's what, how we would often respond to, I think. And this brings us to Jesus' response in verse 17. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against itself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is facing skeptics who can't, or maybe just won't understand what he's about. And their accusation is that he is in cahoots with Beelzebul. That he's in, partnered up with the devil himself. And Jesus obviously doesn't take these claims lying down. Instead, he counters with a logic that's hard to deny. He asks him, if I'm driving out demons by Beelzebub, then how do your followers drive them out? It's like, asking a team, it's like asking if a team is scoring goals against themselves to win a football match. It just doesn't make sense. It's a self-defeating strategy. And this clarity Jesus brings exposes the faulty reasoning behind their accusations. The way Jesus brings clarity is so good. It's like if someone claims the earth is flat and you take them on a round-the-world trip. Once you see the whole picture, the truth is undeniable. Jesus continues his rebuttal by spinning a tale that they would understand, the story of a kingdom divided. He states, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house that stands against itself will fall. It's a universal truth that unity is the backbone of strength, a principle applicable to every sphere in life. Um, If you didn't know that these words from Jesus, you maybe recognize them from Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln using these words when discussing the problem of slavery in the USA. In Jesus's case, the argument is pretty simple. If Satan is casting out Satan, he's shooting himself in the foot. He's sabotaging his own mission. It's a self-defeating argument. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He then claims, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, which is a phrase I think might be useful to unpack a little the finger of God, that phrase might ring a bell. See, back in, we can trace it all the way back to the story of Exodus. Back in Exodus, during the plagues of Egypt, the magicians of Pharaoh used this phrase to recognize a power that far exceeded their own. Okay, so these plagues are coming down onto the Egyptian people and Pharaoh's, like, magicians are, are commanded to try and recreate like the same things, and they can't, they recognize that there's a different league going on here. There's there's different power altogether. This isn't just any old power. Whenever God points, stuff happens, is the gist here. When God points, stuff happens. Big things happen. So what Jesus is effectively saying is that these signs and wonders, this exorcism, is proof that God's kingdom is breaking into the present drawing on historical biblical language to make a point. The story then moves on. Jesus gets on a roll with sharing analogies and parables. And this one is short but powerful. From verse 21. 
When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. So the story is, I think, pretty simple to get your head around. It's about a strong man, fully armed, watching over his house and his possessions. He's confident, he's secure, he's untouchable. But then enters a stronger man who defeats him, takes his stuff, and that's the gist of the story. But this isn't about physical muscle. We're talking about real power, real power, real authority, and spiritual strength. The strong man in this case, I think we can probably figure out who is the strong man and who is the stronger man. With the scene that's unfolded, it's clear that Jesus is painting a picture of himself and Satan. Satan is being pictured as the strong man, has claimed the world as his own, but Jesus, the stronger man, has entered the scene. But Jesus isn't coming as a criminal. Jesus is coming as a rightful king, reclaiming his kingdom. He's not breaking and entering He's kicking down the door, he's overpowering the intruder, and he's liberating his people who have been slaved. So that's what's the takeaway for us, for God's kingdom. This world as it stands is a battlefield marked by spiritual warfare. Jesus' ministry, his teachings, his exorcisms, they're not just good deeds. They are declarations of war against the powers of darkness. The kingdom of God is on the offensive, charging into enemy territory. And the good news, folks, for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, is that the war has been won on your behalf. The war is won altogether. If the, 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 story, the analogy that I find helpful is we live on the other side of D-Day. This, this moment in World War II, when it's considered the pivotal moment whenever the war was won, the decisive battles won for us through Christ on the cross. We live in the reality of that on the other side of that, but we aren't in eternal home just yet. Jesus invites us into the winning side. He rallies us to stand up, to fight with him, In effect, there's a call to arms, but it's not a call to metal or to might or to violence, but it's a call to faith and to love. It's a call to pick up your cross daily and follow him. This is true faith, true faith. The good news is that true faith has nothing to do with joining a physical fight. True faith is about whether we show grace and mercy to others or not. C.S. Lewis in Mere, Christianity's, um, in Mere Christianity has a useful quote where he discusses enemy-occupied territory. This is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. And it's calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Spiritual warfare is real, and sometimes it can be, the idea of discussing it can be, um, can be scary, but it's, it doesn't have to be scary when we remember that Jesus Christ has already won this war. Um, we can rest confident in that truth. There's a lot that could be said here, but we're going we're gonna to keep pushing on. Let's move on to verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Uh, this is a, a really interesting point about neutrality. Uh, a, a year or two ago, um, 
Rob Lowe, who's a famous actor who's in the West Wing and a bunch of other stuff, he was spotted at an NFL, an American football game um, between Adam's beloved Green Bay Packers, Adam's not here, and Matt's, and Matt's not here, Matt's beloved San Francisco 49ers, right? Famous people going to big games isn't a big deal, but Rob Lowe wasn't wearing a Packers hat or a 49ers hat. He was wearing an NFL hat that would like, he was supporting the refs or something, and he was like roundly mocked because he was just here for sports fun, you know, like it's a strange thing just to see. It's like going to a, it's like going to a gig and just, I don't know, like celebrating just the concept of music rather than the band itself. He was roundly mocked, and, um, and I, get, I think the point here is that when it comes to faith, there is no neutrality. Neutrality is a myth. It's not an option. There is no blessed are the fence sitters in the kingdom of God. That's not a thing. There is no safe middle ground. Spiritual complacency isn't a good place to be. It's dangerously shaky territory. Ignoring evil, staying silent, not choosing a side. Jesus is saying that's as good as choosing the wrong side. There's no gray area here. It's like Frodo Baggins hearing of the journey that lies ahead of him and opting to just chill in the shire. The ring has to be destroyed. It can't be kept for personal gain or seemingly used for a good cause. Frodo has to embark on a mission. He has to go to Mordor. He has to go to Mount Doom. There's no middle ground. In the same way, Jesus tells us, you can't serve two masters. You're either with me or you're against me. We'll come back to this in a bit because I think there's more to take here. But there's no, it's not all warnings and woe. Jesus calling us to commitment. He's extending an invitation, not to some ho-hum, lukewarm, wishy-washy faith, but to a fiery, active, all-in kind of faith. We're invited to stop spectating and start participating. Verse 24, the analogies, the stories continue. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So again, back to spiritual warfare stuff, stuff that might make us start to feel uncomfortable. Jesus basically describes the career of a demon, um, presumably like the one he had just cast out, just your average demon. And so here's what Jesus wants us to understand about what it's like to be a demon. Imagine you come home to find squatters in your house and you get the police involved and you kick them out and you set about cleaning the house but instead of moving back in, the house sits empty. And Jesus says that the house owners didn't replace the mess with anything good. And the demon comes back and sees an empty, clean house and brings his mates for an even wilder party than before. And Jesus is pointing out here that the demon is comfortable with a human being who has been tidied up. 
who's sinning less than before, who looks good and smells fresh and even quotes scripture, like 1 Corinthians 14, about all things being done decently in order, swept and put in order. But swept and put in order is no defense against evil. The demon licks its lips at the possibilities here. This teaching reveals how vulnerable This teaching of Jesus reveals how vulnerable negative repentance, turning from sin without turning to God is. Does that make sense, this idea of negative repentance? See, in the kingdom of God, we're brought from slavery into freedom. We're brought from darkness into light. We're not brought from darkness just into like a vaguely shady kind of bright place. We're brought into full brightness from one place totally into the other. This idea of of just negative repentance, turning from sin without turning to God, getting free of bad habits without getting bound to the newness of life in Christ. Those things are, that leaves us in a vulnerable place embarking on, on those kinds of things. What does it mean to seek out this newness of life? Um, we don't have loads of time to get into this, but if I did have time, I might say, <laughs> uh, it's all the stuff that you know to be true. It's cultivating prayer and intimacy with God, regular prayer time, spending time in God's presence through devotions, through worship, through meditation on his word. They strengthen our connection with him. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us and we experience his transformative power. Prayer works. Studying and applying God's word works. Delving into the Bible to understand God's truth and apply it to daily life. The word of God acts as our guide. It shapes our thoughts, our attitudes, and actions according to his will. Prayer, reading God's word, engaging in worship and fellowship. Christianity isn't a solo endeavor. Participating in corporate worship and fellowship with other believers, this helps us focus on God's greatness. And community support encourages spiritual growth and accountability. Seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit, yielding to the Spirit's guidance in all areas of life. This, this, the Spirit empowers believers to live in obedience to God and enables them to bear spiritual fruit. What else? How by practicing love, practicing forgiveness, embracing Christ's commandments to love one another and forgive as he forgave us, loving each other, seeking reconciliation. These things demonstrate the transformative work of God's love in our hearts. Serving and sharing Christ's love, engaging in acts of service, being a conduit of God's love to the world. This, this allows us to experience the joy of living um, of a, I just uh, what <laughs> this uh, gives us the joy of living out His purposes, pursuing holiness, pursuing repentance, developing gratitude, developing contentment. These are all practices that lead us into new life. Christ has led us into new life, and then we're invited to participate in relationship with Him. And that doesn't happen if nothing happens. Relationship with Christ doesn't just happen if you let it sit there. We have an opportunity to to step into that through devotion. Easy enough, right? Easy in words, maybe. But the, the point is that any moral reform that creates a mere vacuum in your life will be filled by evils worse than before. 
Our only safety is to be filled by the Spirit. Escaping from evil is not found in neutrality. It's not even found in well-manicured neutrality. Our only safety lies in welcoming and revering and rejoicing in the kingdom of God coming upon us in divine power. The stories continue, the analogies continue. Verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you were nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This, the words from this beautiful, from these, these beautiful words from this woman might be heartfelt, they might be sincere, but they're fixated on a physical connection, a biological bond. Again, my first instinct when I read this is to facepalm, like all this stuff that Jesus has said and Jesus has done, and someone's like, blessed be your mom. <laughs> it's like, no, you're just missing the point again. But I, again, Jesus doesn't respond like this. That's my sinful reading of this. Um, we often respond in ways that we aren't meant to respond, and that's what's happening here. And in this case, it's a bit like admiring, like walking into the gallery, looking at the painting, and admiring the frame. Just missing the point altogether. This woman, when she sees Jesus, she hears his teachings, her admiration stops at the surface. She acknowledges his physical birth, his earthly connections, but misses the deeper significance. How often are we like this? We sometimes see the things of God, but we get stuck on the outside, forgetting that faith is about a deep inner transformation. The kingdom of God isn't about who you were born to. The kingdom of God isn't about who raised you. The kingdom of God is a family that's knitted together through adoption in the, the, the Lord's family through the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus has pointed this out before. Again, whenever someone brought up the, the fact of his family, his earthly family, back in chapter eight, in verse 19, it says, now Jesus' mother and brother came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. My mother and brother are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Jesus, ever the teacher, doesn't rebuke this woman. Instead, he takes her exclamation and gives it a new direction. He moves the blessedness from physical lineage to the spiritual relationship, from biological connection to spiritual dedication. The blessed, the blessed are not simply those who bear and nurse, but those who hear the word of God and obey it. Think about that for a moment, hearing God's word and keeping it. That's an active faith. That's not a passive one. That's not one in the gray area. That's not a neutral position. It's one thing to hear God's word or read God's word, but to step out of this idea of neutrality is to act upon it. Hearing alone isn't enough. Transformation comes in obedience. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
It's like having a recipe for the best chocolate cake in the world. Having the recipe is great, but if you want to taste the cake, you have to follow the recipe and bake it. Or like watching an exercise program. Like I know all of the exercise I should be doing, but I haven't done a single one of them. There's no transformation. If we want to experience the true blessedness that Jesus is talking about, we need to put faith in action. We need to put the word into action. So there's a load of stuff here that we've gone through. Jesus has authority over all things. And there's a lot of challenges here that are thrown up. How do we personally understand and accept Jesus' authority over all things? When you see miracles, when you hear the parables, when you encounter teachings that challenge your very way of living, what is your reaction? Do you, like the amazed crowd, marvel at its power, or do you, like the skeptics, find it hard to fully accept? And that's okay if there's a bit of skepticism in your mind. Let's talk about doubt. Doubt is not a negative thing. Doubt is just a sign that you're wrestling with big questions, that you're seeking truth, that you're not simply accepting things at face value. If you have doubts about Jesus, his authority, his teachings, you're not alone. Doubt is a part of faith. It's an element in our journey towards understanding. Doubt can, if we let it, lead us deeper into a more profound faith. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It's an element of faith. We have to let it take, take us closer towards Jesus, not away. What about this illusion of neutrality? Have you fallen into a way of living that puts you on the fence? I find that really confronting. I find it really deeply challenging because sometimes I like sitting in this, comf- not that sitting on a fence is particularly comfortable. That's where the analogy breaks down. It's deeply uncomfortable if we really think about it. But sitting in this, this idea of neutrality is a comfortable one for me where I'm not pushed to do anything outside of my comfort zone. These are the questions that we have to take seriously if we're following Jesus. I want to encourage you to take time this week to contemplate these questions. Consider if Jesus Christ truly is God and gave his life for you, what does that mean in terms of our response to him? How does his authority and sacrifice influence our daily decisions, our life, our day-to-day comings and goings? Reflecting on Scripture today, the journey doesn't end with recognizing Jesus' authority or wrestling with our doubts. The crucial part is obedience to the kingdom of God. This obedience, this commitment is a conscious decision to uphold the values of love, of peace, of service, even in the face of adversity. It's making our choice, making a choice to align ourselves with God's love and to dedicate ourselves to his service. That commitment is demonstrated through the outworking of our heart. But commitment alone is not enough. We practice spiritual disciplines. Like the clean house mentioned in the story, we need to ensure that our spiritual house is not vacant but filled with God's presence. It's like maintaining a garden. If we don't tend to it regularly, weeds overtake it. Similarly, spiritual disciplines, but disciplines like prayer, like meditating on God's word, like fasting, help us grow and prevent spiritual decline. These things won't save you. 
Let me just make that abundantly clear. These things don't save you. The work of Jesus saves you. But on the other side of the cross, how are you going to live? Jesus has brought you from death to life. How are you going to live? To become more Christ-like, we need to step into a life of, of spiritual rhythms and patterns and habits and disciplines. It's not an easy process, but it's worthwhile. In the, in the words of Paul in Roman, Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So church, let's strive to cultivate these spiritual habits in our lives for our transformation and glorification in, in Christ. I want to invite you to stand as we come to a close and we respond by coming to the Lord's table. Church, there's a spiritual war raging on. We're in enemy-occupied territory. But the good news is that Jesus has won, ultimately, and he has authority over all things. He has invited us into a life where he gives us that authority. And he invites us into a life, not into, into a spiritual neutrality, but to live into true blessedness. And this is the beauty of the, of, of the Lord's Supper, where it becomes even more meaningful. When we partake in this meal, we're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice, his authority over sin, over evil, over death, and the kingdom he inaugurated. Communion symbolizes our unity with him and each other as part of his family. As we come to the, to the table, we're called to examine our hearts. So I invite you to do that now. Let's take a moment and examine what's going on in our lives. Are we fully committed to Christ? Or are there areas in our lives where we're holding back? Let's not be like the skeptics who refuse to embrace his authority and wisdom. Instead, let us be like the ones who hear God's word and put it into practice, becoming part of his true family. So as we approach the communion table today, let's remember this. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Jesus calls us to be wholeheartedly committed to him. There's no room for divided loyalty. There's no place for neutral grounds. Let's fill our lives with his presence, submitting to his authority, experiencing the transformation that only he can bring. And just like a house filled with his love, grace, and truth will stand firm, we will stand firm against any evil that tries to come in. So I want to invite you to come to feast together at this table, celebrating our unity in Christ and his victorious kingdom. Um, there'll be two stations, one on either side. There'll be a bit of bread, there'll be a bit of wine. As you take a bit of bread and a bit of wine, remember his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. This act of communion, this shared experience, brings us together in his love and under his authority. This, uh, this meal is for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, um, uh, you have something amazing ahead of you, and I would love to introduce Jesus to you today. So if you want to find out, if you want to meet Jesus today, please come and talk to me. I would be delighted to introduce you to him. Then we can take communion together. Um, church, let's uh, come to the table.